We're, in, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 12. So that's one of the blue sheets that you've been given. Isaiah chapter 12. In that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord, although you were angry with me, for anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Now, let's just pray together, and then we'll look at this little chapter in Isaiah, which I think is so appropriate for our meeting this morning. Heavenly Father, we want to bow before you again to thank you for all that you have done for us, and we want to ask you that you would open our eyes now to your truth. Please, Lord, give us minds to think through what you're saying in your word. Please soften our hearts by your Holy Spirit that we may receive your word and rejoice in it and believe and act upon it. And please strengthen our wills, Lord, so that we might go out to live and work for your praise and glory through the days of this coming week and all the weeks that you give us in our lives here in this world. So please take your word and make it live to us now, we pray, for the glory of your name and the benefit of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Bible shows us that God in his providence has ordered our human lives so that uh, there are regular opportunities to stop and to reflect on the past and to gather strength for the future. Uh, Sunday is one of those opportunities. Sunday, the first day of the week, the day of resurrection. Christian people can set aside as a time of reflection. God has been good to us this past week. Maybe we have to come and say we have been faithless and ask for his forgiveness again. But as we reflect on the past, we gather strength for the future. Because as we've just heard, God doesn't change, his word doesn't change, his promises are faithful. The Old Testament festivals were designed to do that. People went up to Jerusalem three times a year for the major festivals to reflect on what God had done and to find strength for the future. And a birthday like this, 20 years on, has been a great way of doing that. So many causes for thanksgiving and so many examples of God's faithfulness. And if we had a microphone to go through everybody in the congregation this morning, I'm sure many of you would say, yes, my experience of being in this church, I can see times when God reached out to me, when he challenged me, when he um, encouraged me, built me up. And uh, I want to give thanks for all that he's done in my life and through this church. But our looking back is not nostalgic. Uh, We don't believe in the theme song, I believe in yesterday. Rather, it is to be faith-building, because whether you've been here at City Church for 20 years or one week, as a community, as a local company of Christians, we all face the same future, and we shall all need God's strength and wisdom. We shall need God's grace and love 
in the coming days. And that's why I believe Isaiah 12 is a word from the Lord for today. Now, let me just give you a bit of background. Isaiah is prophesying in Jerusalem 700 years before Jesus comes. His message is in some ways a dark message because he's telling the people of Israel that if they do not stop rebelling against God, God's judgment will ultimately fall on them. And it will come through the Babylonian Empire, which will come and conquer and destroy the city of Jerusalem and its temple. Sadly, that happened over a hundred years later after Isaiah. But it isn't just a message of judgment. Always in the Bible, judgment and salvation are two sides of the same coin. And so Isaiah is saying, yes, but there is hope. There is a message of rescue. There is forgiveness. There is restoration. There's the possibility of new life. And in the book of Isaiah, that centers particularly upon someone who is called the Messiah, which means the person anointed and set apart, set apart and chosen by God, what we call the Christ, Messiah in the Old Testament, Christ in the New Testament. And in this anointed servant of the Lord, who is going to come as God with us, as the suffering servant who will give his life on the cross, and as the anointed conqueror who will reign over all history and all that he has created. This suffering and yet glorious servant is the one in whom and through whom the rescue is going to come. So there are these sections in the book of Isaiah. Now, we're in chapter 12, which is the end of the first section. And as you study the book as a whole, you realize that one of the things that Isaiah loves to do is to end off each section with a great hymn or song of praise. And that's what we've got here in chapter 12 at the end of the first part of the book. Because this chapter captures and expresses the joy that comes when we respond to God's word with faith and with commitment. And it's full of joy and thanksgiving, which is what we want our hearts to be. Because believing people are always rejoicing people. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher at Westminster Chapel, says in one of his books that a joyless Christian is a contradiction in terms. A joyless Christian. We might say today it's an oxymoron. You know, an oxymoron is where you get two things put together in a phrase which seem to be impossible to combine, like easy Brexit. That's an oxymoron. But how can we relate to this? If God is going to make his people joyful people, what is it that will generate that? How can we be really the people that he intends us to be? One more piece of introduction. When you come to an Old Testament prophecy like this, uh, it's like taking a hike in the hill country. Uh, if you go out for a day walking in the hills, you could perhaps start the day and you, you look ahead and you can see ranges of hills. And uh, you make your guesses, don't you, about how far we might get by coffee time or lunch time or tea time. And usually it takes much longer than we anticipated because you go up a hill and then going down the other side and through the valley and up to the next one is a much longer process. Now, when you get an Old Testament prophecy, you want to think about three different hilltops of significance. It meant something, of course, very important for the people who heard it when Isaiah said these words, probably in the temple in Jerusalem. 
So you always have to start by saying, well, the first hilltop is, what did it mean to them when they heard these words? But how does the Old Testament relate to us 2,700 years later? Well, the second of the hilltops is a hill called Calvary where the Lord Jesus died on the cross. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Everything finds its fulfillment in Christ. So I move from what did it mean to those first hearers to ask myself, yes, but what difference does it make now to us, because this is the living word of God that never changes, what difference does it make to us that Jesus has now come and that he has done that great work of salvation we've been singing about? How has this prophecy been fulfilled in Christ? And then, of course, the third hilltop is the one that we're looking forward to, the ultimate future, the eternal kingdom of God, the new creation. That was the future for them. It's still the future for us. So we always have to ask that question. How do we live in the light of this eternal truth? And that provides us, you see, the three hilltops. What did it mean to them then? What difference does it make that Jesus has come? And now what is that going to mean for me this week? Those three hilltops enable us to have a sort of template for understanding and applying these Old Testament prophecies, which are wonderful chapters of God's living and enduring word. Now, the division of the chapter is very simple and self-evident. If you look at verse 1 on the blue sheet, you'll see that it begins, in that day you will say. And then if you look down to verse 4, in that day you will say. So it's a game of two halves. It's a sermon with two points. Rejoice, rejoice. Not three or four, two. And here on this birthday celebration, what are we being taught to encourage us as the people of God? Well, in the first three verses then, the first half of the chapter, I want to call this, praise the Lord for his salvation praise the lord for his salvation well you say that sounds very predictable but i want you to see that these verses are full of good things in that day you will say which day in that day is a phrase that isaiah often uses to reveal realities in the longer term future But if we had the whole Bible, and maybe you've got a Bible open there, you'll see that in the preceding verses in chapter 11, the phrase has been used to describe what God is going to do through the Messiah. Chapter 11 begins that uh, the stump of Jesse will produce a branch uh, which will grow up. Now, Jesse was the father of King David, and God promised to David an everlasting dynasty. But when Isaiah was prophesying... The monarchy was declining, and eventually it was going to disappear in the Babylonian exile. It would be just a stump. But out of the stump, a branch would come, a shoot, a new life, a new and perfect king. And in that day, chapter 11 says, the root of Jesse, that's the Messiah, will be a banner for the people, and the nations will rally to him. So God is going to do something really wonderful beyond Israel. He's going to bring people from every tribe and kindred and nation into his worldwide kingdom to experience his salvation. It is the day of salvation that's being talked about. And again in chapter 11 it says, In that day God will raise a banner for the nations and assemble the scattered peoples. A new worldwide kingdom will be established. So when we come to our passage in that day, 
he's thinking about this great kingdom, the kingdom of God that came in the Lord Jesus, the king, and that was sealed by his blood of sacrifice on the cross and is vindicated by his resurrection from the dead. So look at verse 1. In that day, the day of salvation, which is now, it's today, you will say, I will praise you, Lord, Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you've comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Now think of our three hilltops. There was a partial fulfillment of that day of salvation when after the Babylon uh, exile, the people came back to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the city and the temple. Isaiah prophesied that. That was fulfilled. But what difference does it make that Jesus has come? Well, Jesus is the branch. He's the shoot from Jesse's stump. And he came to bring this salvation, eternal salvation. And the ultimate fulfillment on the third hilltop is that when at last we see him face to face and when Jesus returns to judge the human race and to bring in his eternal kingdom, then we shall realize what a great salvation he has made for us. We have some measure of understanding, but on that day, when the judgment of God is revealed and people are crying out to the mountains and rocks to hide them from the face of God's righteous judgment, then you will know what a great salvation you have in its fullest measure. So this is most certainly for us. It sets us an agenda that our lives should be characterized by praising the Lord for this salvation. In verse 1, the you is singular. I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. So the you that's being talked about here, or the me if you like, is singular. It's an individual person who's celebrating God's salvation. But when you come to it in verse uh, 4, in that day you will say... The you there is plural. In fact, it changes to plural in verse 3. With joy, you, plural, will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now, we only have one word in English, but the Hebrew has a singular and a plural. And so what it's saying is that you and I, as members of the one body, the new covenant community, brothers and sisters in Christ, we receive our salvation individually. The only way into the kingdom of God is by you personally coming to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Nobody can make you a Christian. You don't become a Christian by being born into a Christian family. You become a Christian by individually crying out to God for his rescue, for his salvation. We receive God's salvation as individuals, but we experience God's uh, salvation only in community as plural as the church of Christ. And we here today belong to one another, whatever churches we might have come from, if we're visiting, as well as the city congregation, we all belong to one another because we all belong to Christ, who is our head. So what is this individual experience of salvation? Because if we're going to be praising God for it, and that ought to be our lifestyle, we need to remember what it is. It's a sort of pilgrim's progress in verses 2 and 3. He begins with the recognition of God's anger. Now, the anger of God is not a fit of rage. It is the implacable opposition of a righteous and holy God 
against the sin and rebellion of the human race that he's created. There would be no need for a salvation if God were not holy. But because he is perfectly righteous, utterly holy, and thank God that he is, the standard of righteousness in all of our experience, as the creator and as the judge, he cannot overlook our sin. But the great good news of the gospel is that the anger of God has been turned away through the death of Jesus on the cross in our place. So if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the atoning sacrifice. The old word is propitiation for our sins. He turns the anger of God away because he experiences that just judgment in our place. Now for Israel, the judgment was going to be the devastation of the exile. But for New Testament believers... Because the root from Jesse's stump has carried that guilt and punishment in his own body on the cross, when you have trusted Jesus, then you know that verse 1 is true, isn't it? Your anger has turned away, and you've comforted me. So praise the Lord for what he's done. Never regard your salvation as just the sort of way into the Christian life. It is the way on in the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of constant thanksgiving for the salvation that Jesus has brought, for the acceptance and confidence and comfort that comes, which enables Isaiah to say on behalf of every believer, verse uh, 2, surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. What a connection that is. If God is your salvation, if he's the divine rescuer and he's kept you for himself, then as you trust him, you're no longer afraid. You're not afraid of God. You're not afraid of his holiness. You're not afraid of your enemies and the people who accuse you. You're not afraid even of your own failure and weakness and inability to be the person you'd like to be. You're not afraid because God is my salvation. And he is the Lord. See it there in verse 2, twice in capital letters, the Lord. And wherever you get the Lord in capital letters in the English translation, it's the name of God that he gave to Moses. It used to be called Jehovah. Most scholars think now it's the name Yahweh. But it means a God who is faithful to his promises, who never changes. I am who I am. Mercy, grace, love, goodness. This God. He is the source of my salvation. Not my works, which are like filthy rags in God's sight even if they are good in my eyes. But not even my faith, that's not what saves me. Ultimately, the salvation is God's work. Faith connects me to that God's work, to that work. But from beginning to end, the Lord is my salvation. And if this is the Lord's doing, then that repetition, the Lord, the Lord is my strength, then that is expressing amazement and confidence and And also endearment, this gracious, loving God. That's where I find my strength. That's where my defense comes. And that's where my joy is founded. Because in the original version, uh, in Exodus 15, which was the song of praise when they came out through the sea and God led them out of Egypt, it says, the Lord is my strength and my song. 
So when we stand before God, if we're believers through the Lord Jesus, we stand before salvation. I will praise you, O Lord. Now then the you becomes plural in verse 3. With joy, you, all of you, will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now this is what makes us praising people, you see. Because God is our salvation, it will never fail. There's always more grace. The wells of salvation have water deep enough in it for you to draw on every day of your life. And of course, that sort of rescue is something that we are familiar with. I mean, if you followed the cricket this summer, you may have seen that amazing uh, Uh, innings by Ben Stokes when he really defeated the Australians single-handed and the commentators were all saying oh Stokes is our salvation because what he accomplished brought about the victory in that match now in a much more wonderful way God is our salvation what he has accomplished has brought about this great experience of living as a Christian who every day has living water in the person of the Lord Jesus So those first hearers on the first hilltop would have been reminded about the exodus. But we know that the Lord Jesus is the one who himself has provided the living water. Do you remember how he was one day preaching in the temple and he cried out, John 7 verse 37 is the reference. He cried out saying, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his being will flow rivers of living water. And it was that same Lord Jesus who, as he died on the cross, provided the means by which we can have the life-giving water, the power of God in our own lives, the life of God flowing into us to change us from the inside out. And that's why joyless Christians are a contradiction in terms, because the Christian life is filled with joy. Because Christ our Saviour is an instant, inexhaustible supply of God's love and grace and mercy to us every day of our lives. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that they're free from problems. Of course, it doesn't mean that we have dark days, we don't have dark days and difficult days. But in those days, we draw the water from the wells of salvation. The life-giving power of Christ is that salvation. And as we draw that water or to change the metaphor as we plug into that supply then that is how we are sustained and strengthened that's what's kept this church going for 20 years that not only the leaders but you as the members and the givers the prayers the witnesses you've been drawing water from the wells of salvation those wells are never going to run dry they are God's eternal grace towards us there's always more grace So why is it that we Christians have a reputation for being negative and restrictive and joyless? Now the story of the guy who's trying to get people to come into his church building and he's standing on the streets looking pretty miserable about it and he says to one of the passers-by, do come into our service. And the passerby says, no thanks, I've already got enough problems of my own. And people tend to look at the church like that, don't they? They think it will just multiply their problems. Why? Is it, I wonder, because we're not joyfully drinking the water of salvation every day? Wesley said he used to pray, Lord, cure me of my intermittent piety 
and make me thoroughly Christian. And I think we suffer from intermittent piety. Speaking for myself, I know how true that can be. But every day I need to be drawing from the well of salvation, finding my life and strength and vision and energy and power in the Lord Jesus. And if I find that I'm not very joyful, then I need to pray, Lord, cure me of my intermittent grumpiness and make me thoroughly joyful. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Praise the Lord for his salvation. Now, the second part of the chapter is also part of the answer to the joyless Christian. Because it turns us out from ourselves to the needs of the world all around us. Some of you will know the name of the Puritan pastor Richard Baxter who ministered in Kidderminster for many years and who wrote a wonderful book called The Reformed Pastor. And in The Reformed Pastor, this experienced gospel minister says, what do you do in a church when controversies arise that threaten the unity of the church and when people seem to get their eyes you know, onto the minutiae and the peripheral things rather than the main things or when they become depressed and discouraged and they don't hold on to the faith? And he says, well, when you face controversies like that, you raise a larger controversy. That is the controversy of the gospel. And you say to people, what are we here for? What do we exist for? Why is this church uh, planted in this place? It is that the gospel may reach out into the neighborhood. And you only hold on to the word of life as a church when you hold out the word of life to the unbelieving world. When God brought in his salvation, it was so that we might be involved in that great mission in the world of making that salvation known. Isaiah had that experience in the famous sixth chapter when he finds himself being cleansed by God. He hears God saying to this cleansed man, now whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And he says, here am I, send me. And that is the authentic response, isn't it? That Praising the Lord for his salvation means proclaiming the Lord to the nations. Proclaim the Lord to the nations. But I want you to see that it begins with being thrilled with who God is. It begins with the worship which takes the very name of God and proclaims his character. Look at verse 4. Give praise to the Lord. Call upon his name. That's one translation. This one says proclaim his name. Now his name is his nature. The name of God sums up all that he is, and we've got many names of God in the scriptures. So what it's saying is, as you call on him, worshipping him and praying to him, then you will be someone who is proclaiming him by your life, and as opportunities arise, by your words. And that happens when verse 4 is happening. Because we make known among the nations what he has done. So you see, in the first part of verse 4, you've got uh, the person of God in the Lord Jesus. His name is Savior. His name is the Christ. And then you've got also the work of the Lord Jesus. Make known among the nations what he has done. The glorious things that he has brought about. Now, because of his mighty rescue work, 
That's why we proclaim him to the world as God and Savior. That's not easy, I know, but if we really are rejoicing in the wells of salvation, the fact that the Lord is our strength, if we're trusting him and not being afraid, then when you have that conversation this week at the coffee point at work or at the water cooler or wherever it is and somebody says to you, isn't the world in a mess? I don't know what the world's coming to, do you? There's a moment. What do you say? No, it's terrible, isn't it? Would you pass the sugar, please? Well, that's no good, is it? The church is doing that. Nobody's going to hear the good news. See, we have opportunities all the time to proclaim his name among the nations. So how about saying, well, I think I do know where it's all going to. It's going to the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. That'll make the coffee go down a little more differently this morning. (laughs) But you see, we've got to take those opportunities. That's why we need to trust and not be afraid. Don't have to be foolish. Don't have to ram it down people's throats. But evangelism is the overflow of our joy in Jesus. My heart is full of Christ, the old hymn says, and longs its glorious matter to declare. But if it isn't full of Christ, then there's no overflow of God's life. And there's no outflow of God's truth. That's why verse 5 says, Sings to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. That is, supreme things, wonderful things, great things that demonstrate his glory. And we are called to proclaim to the world this joyful song of salvation as to who the Lord is and what he's done for us in our lives. Let this be known to all the world. And our last verse says, make a loud noise about it. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion. Uh, It's not a loud noise about ourselves. It's not a loud noise that we sort of look inside ourselves and try to stir up some inner emotion of joy. But it comes from focusing on his deeds of power and majesty. If every day I'm at the cross rejoicing in his forgiveness, if every day I'm at the empty tomb praising him for his resurrection, if every day I'm drawing that life-giving water from the wells of salvation, then there will be an overflow. In that day, the last day, we shall praise him as we ought. But we can develop our abilities now because, as the last verse says, great is the Holy One of Israel among you. He does dwell with us. That's the testimony of these 20 years. And he accepts us clothed in the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why a city being preserved and grown these 20 years? Because great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Great in the promises he's given in his word. Great in his grace that reaches out to save us from his wrath. Great in his love and care for the nations as we share the joy with those to whom he sends us. That's why the future is as bright as the promises of God. So as we close... The Davidic tree may have been felled in the exile, but the root remained, and the shoot came one day and flourished, and the Messiah appeared, and he accomplished the greatest exodus of all time.
to draw men and women from all the nations to himself. And that's the reality today, that all over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. And we are people of Zion. Zion is God's dwelling place. And if it sometimes feels like the church is in the Babylonian captivity, then look to the third eternal hilltop. Look to that day when we shall know as we are known and when we shall praise him as we ought. But in the meantime, we have our agenda. We have our Bible, we have our knees, and we have our marching orders for the coming years. So rejoice in the Lord Jesus and the rescue that he's brought about. And if you don't know that rescue, seek him, ask him to reveal it to you. Come to put your faith in him. And as you share that love, which he has for you and which you reflect as you seek to love him, then your praise will overflow in this dry and thirsty land. So John Newton once wrote, Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken chose you for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, who can shake your sure repose with salvation's walls surrounded? You can smile at all your foes. And then he concludes that great hymn, Saviour, if of Zion City I, through grace, a member am, let the world deride or pity. I will glory in your name. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Proclaim him among the nations, for he has done glorious things. And go in confidence, knowing that as we seek to follow in humble faith and dependence on his grace and mercy, great is the Holy One among you. Let's pray. Just a moment or two of quietness for us to Make our own individual response. Maybe something the Lord has said to you, one thing that's particularly struck you. Turn it into a prayer. Ask him to write it on your heart and to work it out in your life. Just a moment or two of quiet response. So, Lord, we pray that our lives may be full of praise and thanksgiving. That whatever the difficulties are, whatever the dangers we may face, or the uncertainties which are all around us, thank you that we can trust and not be afraid. And thank you that as we draw the water from the wells of salvation, as we find your life-giving power changing us day by day, our lives can overflow your praise so that your glory is proclaimed among the nations. Please make City Church in the coming years an even greater proclaimer of that truth. May the gospel reach out from this congregation into multitudes of lives and bring many who at the moment are lost in darkness out of the darkness into your marvelous light. And build us up, Lord. Help us to love one another and care for one another and strengthen one another and uh, enable us as a congregation to be drawing those, that water from the wells 
and to be praising you through our corporate witness. Lord, we give you thanks for all that is past and we trust you for what is yet to come. In Jesus' name, amen.